so good. Hey, I had a couple of things too. I felt like God was speaking to my heart before we get into the message. And uh, one of them was, you know, just thinking about as people are, are moving and relocating, Alyssa, the bells and the walls, that, that if you were to run into them somewhere, right, whether it be in an airport or maybe you're traveling and you stop at a restaurant and you turn around and, and, right, and there's Jib and Debbie Bell and you haven't seen them in a year or so, you'd be like, oh, it's so good to see, right? You, I mean, you, you, your face would light up, you'd get excited, you'd hug each other and, and you'd, you know, you'd pay for their check because you'd be so excited to see them. Come on, praise, right? I know, there you go, Jim. Right? But it would be the same for, for not just them, but people that you haven't seen in a long time. When you see them, you get excited, right? Something, something happens in your heart. And, and what I felt like God wanted to say to somebody here is that's not supposed to define your relationship with Him. He's supposed to be your everyday friend. He's supposed to be your everyday friend, and for some of you, your relationship with God, it's just like that. As you come into moments like this, or maybe you pick up your Bible, you haven't read it for a long time, and, it, and it's like you're, you're, you're running into an old friend, and what God would say to you is, yes, that's how it might be you come back to him, but you need to stay in that place with him and keep nurturing that relationship. He wants to be your everyday friend. That's for somebody here tonight. And then I also felt like somebody uh, here tonight that you're, that you're, that you're struggling in, in a season of hardship. It's interesting, as God was speaking in my heart, that he was sharing that same thing with, with Hannah and Nathaniel. And uh, it, usually in your life, when you're in a season of hardship, it comes after a season of rest. And, 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 and you see this as you track through the Israelites in their journey out of the Exodus. God brought them into an oasis, right, which is a prophetic picture of rest. And then he brought them into the wilderness, which is a prophetic picture of hardship. But then he brought them into the promised land, which is a prophetic picture of purpose. And so if you're in a place of hardship, he's given you all the rest that you need to endure. And the reason why you're in that season of hardship is because he's preparing you for the purpose that he has for you to step into. And so don't hurry out. Of, I, we've all been there in seasons of hardship. We don't like to be there. As Nathaniel was saying, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable, but you don't want to hurry out of there because the purpose that's waiting for you needs you to grow so you can be ready, and God's already given you everything that you need to endure. So Father, we just we pray for all these things that have been shared tonight. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you continue to speak, and God, that you're a living presence, and for all the people that are here that needed to be encouraged by one of those words in some manner, in some way, God, we just seal it, and we just say yes and amen. Let this seed fall on fertile ground, deep, deep, deep into a heart, in Jesus' name. Come on, and everybody said amen. I see you back there, Dylan Fields. Welcome home from college, sir. It's good to have you with us. How about Mother's Day service last weekend? Huh? I know. Oh, no, no. I didn't mean what was going on in here. I meant all the dads working in the nursery. Yeah, yeah. Second year in a row, no numbers popped up on the screen. Just saying. Second year. Second year in a row. It's not really because we do a good job of caring for the children. It's that they just can't figure out why we're back there. And then by the time the service is over, your parents are coming to get them. And so... So, uh, so we're excited to uh, celebrate mothers, and I'm looking forward to listening to the podcast for Vanessa from this past weekend. We're all going away to our annual conference this week, so a lot of travel time. And, and also Amanda, we have a campus in Suffolk, if you didn't know that. Amanda Hiltz preached there. You want to check that podcast out. I know it's going to be amazing, and uh, she always has incredible things to say. Well, we, we are wrapping up a series. Oh, I 
before I do that, you know what I have up here which came in the mail today? A deed to a property. Come on. Yes, indeed. 311 Selden Road. Deed right here. If you're visiting with this property, it was just gifted to us several weeks ago. And uh, come on, it's got the official stamp there on the back of it. So praise that I just had to bring it up here. Gee, let's just put it right here on the altar. Come on. Right there on the altar. Jesus, come on. Come on. Favor of God. Jesus. We've been in this series called Break the Yoke, and the idea behind it, I'm not going to do a big introduction tonight. Uh, we're already off the clock a little bit. You can get that intro through the podcast. Uh, all, those, all of our notes are always up online. We cover a lot of textual ground here, and so um, you, you, can get, you can download those outlines to get all those uh, scriptural references for all of our messages. But the idea of this series is based out of a verse in Isaiah 10 that talks about you and I having a responsibility to be spiritually fit. And in fact, the word in Hebrew, it translates best to is that we're supposed to be fat. Not unhealthy fat, but so big spiritually that when the enemy comes and tries to put yokes of bondage, addictions, right, and, and anger and hurt, things that distract us in this life, things that derail us in this life, that, that it doesn't even fit because we're so big that what he tries to put on us is just too small. That's why we've been using the image of this musk ox. You're never going to see a musk ox with a yoke because they're too big. They don't make yokes big enough. And we want to be so spiritually fit that there's no yoke the enemy could bring to us that he would be successful in putting on us. And in some of what we're calling our spiritual fatty foods, our spiritual disciplines, we've been focusing in specifically on stewardship and generosity. Stewardship in generosity. I was thinking just this week, I remember Vanessa and I, for our one-year anniversary, we went down to Florida. We were married in, in 97, so in 98, uh, we traveled down. We went to Clearwater, and then we went to Orlando and did Universal Studios and uh, SeaWorld. It was a great trip. But I remember it, this little Italian restaurant that overlooked the, the uh, golf there on, in Clearwater, that uh, this little Italian restaurant, as we were walking up to it, the, there was a group of Italian men came out of this basement room all in a single file line and got into their cars and drove away. And Vanessa were like, I think they just put a hit out on somebody, right? This, this could be the godfather in modern day, right? We go in and it was right out of a mob movie. You know, it was gaudy, ornate, the overstuffed red leather furniture. The lady that was playing the piano looked like she'd been playing there for about 50 years. And there was a waiter that came to our table. He, did, he, he almost spoke no English, right? You know you're going to eat good food when you can't talk to the people that are waiting on you. And uh, only spoke Italian. And, uh, and so we ordered a Caesar salad. I'm telling you, it's the best Caesar salad I've ever had. He brings the wooden bowl. If you know anything about Caesar salads, you got to do it in a wooden bowl. There's certain ingredients that go in in a certain order, right? They make this paste up on the side of the bowl, and they put all the ingredients, and I can taste it right now. As I'm best, ruined me for the rest of my life for Caesar salads. But there's an ingredient in a Caesar salad that's important, and it's the anchovy. Now, I'm not a big fan of anchovies, but you gotta have it in the Caesar salad. And, and if it's not in there, as soon as you take your first bite, you know it's missing. But if you put in too much, you can overdo it, and it will overpower all the rest of the flavors. We preach on giving here as a church only a couple of times a year because it's like the anchovy paste in a Caesar salad. 
you, you got to have it, but if it's too much, right, if it's too much, it will overpower everything else that's supposed to be a part of a church. And so here we are in our series. We're going to wrap up over the next couple of weeks. Kim Tree Slaughter is going to be preaching next week. She's right over here. It's going to be good. So I'm going to do, I'm going to do part one. I'm hoping to get thrown and talk about four principles tonight. We want to talk a little bit about the biblical concept of tithing, right? And, and so I want to talk about eight principles. I'm going to hopefully do four uh, tonight, and then in two weeks I'll do, I'll do the last four. I, I think one of the reasons why people tend to cringe when they hear that word is because they've been told things in church about tithing and about giving that was, that was intended to manipulate them. And we're not into manipulation here at the City Life Church. But what we can't do is be afraid of people's negative experiences from their past that cause us to overlook important parts of Scripture, especially when it comes to stewardship and finances. And we've put it, we've contextualized it in this series about being spiritually fit is because you cannot be spiritually fit. You will not be spiritually fit unless the pathways of stewardship and generosity are an active part an active part of your life. The eight principles that we're going to work through, again, I'm going to try to do four tonight, but they are the portion, the consequence, the priority, the attitude, the place, the offerings, the start, and the trust. So somebody say the portion. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Genesis. I want to look at Genesis 14, 18 to 20. Genesis 14, 18 to 20. It says, And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and a priest of God, Most High, brought Abram some bread and wine. Notice it's Abram. It's not Abraham. His name hasn't been changed yet. It says, Melchizedek blessed Abram with the blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. Come on, there's Hannah's word right there. Then Abram gave Melchizedek, here comes a tenth, of all the goods that he had recovered. Now, if you know the story, some of Abram's relative has been captured, and so he took some fighting men. They went, it was, I think it was like 313 of them, and they took on like five kings and five armies. They defeated everybody, and Abram's, they didn't even lose one man. They rescued everybody. They took all the plunder that had been stolen from them. He gives a tenth of it to this king called Melchizedek, which most people believe, and I agree, is a, uh, uh, an appearance of Christ in Scripture before he came and made himself manifest as man in the New Testament. It's interesting here that a tenth was given. This is important to us, and it's one of the reasons why we use this text, is because it's the use of the number tenth prior to the Mosaic Law. Because a lot of people will say that this idea of tithing is not for today because it was unique to the Mosaic Law, which was a Jewish tradition and a Jewish custom. But what you see here is this idea of a tenth being given and set aside to honor and worship actually predates the Mosaic Law. That's important to us. It's one of the reasons why this story is in the Bible. Matthew 23, 23 reads this way. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, he calls them. For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income of your herb gardens, but you ignore the most important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Now listen to what Jesus says. You should tithe, yes, 
but do not neglect the more important things. This is an important verse for us as well because it's a reference in the New Testament where Jesus himself says, yes, there are parts of spiritual communities that are important, justice and mercy, but there is another part that is equally important and that is its financial provision. Because we tend to find ourselves in this life where we say it has to be one or the other. And here Jesus is saying, don't step into a moment of false choice. There are parts of a spiritual community that should be present like justice and mercy, but stewardship and finance should be mingled in as well. They're not mutually exclusive from each other. Now when you look at the Old Testament, it does beg the question, what gets to move from the old to the new? And of all the things that you find in the Old Testament, there are only three things that ultimately happen to everything in the Old Testament as it moves into the New Testament, right? It either is released, which means that we don't do it anymore, which means that it was a practice that was meant for a time and a place and a people, but it's not for today, right? So like all the animal sacrifice that was part of worshiping God. Well, we still sacrifice animals, but we, right, we do it on the grill. It's, 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 a, it's a little bit different, but we're still into the consumption of the food, right? Praise the Lord. So, but we're not doing that here in the church, right? Not doing that here in the church. There's practices in the Old Testament we don't do anymore. Now, there's some that remain, which means that just as they were then, it's the same for today. The Ten Commandments would be an example of that. If Jesus doesn't come back for another 10,000 years, murder will still be wrong. Right? Stealing will still be wrong. There are certain parts of the Old Testament, I don't care what time period you drop it in, it's, it's, it's relevant because it's what's called universal morality. Now, it's either released or it remains, and then there's a third category, which it's raised. Now, what does that mean? When you get into the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what you find is that there are times where Jesus says, this is how it used to be, and now this is how it's going to be today. How about when he says, the law says that if you commit adultery, that you've committed a sin, a sexual relationship with someone other than your spouse. And then Jesus says, that's still a sin, but from now on, if you look at another person lustfully, then you've already committed adultery in your heart, right? There's parts of the Old Testament where Jesus says, we're taking the standard a little bit higher. Now, everything in the Old Testament, I don't care what you pick, it's got to fall into one of those three categories. It's either left behind and not part of our today, it either stays the same, or the standard gets raised even higher, even higher. Now, I would suggest to you that if you believe that 10% is a timeless principle for giving, meaning that it remains, then you should be actively demonstrating 10% of your finances to the church that you call home. If you feel that it falls into the raised category, then you believe, like for me personally, that 10% is just a starting point. It's just a starting point, and that God wants us to discover even deeper levels of generosity throughout our days. If you believe that the New Testament doesn't demand sacrificial generosity from us, meaning that you think it's something that should be released, then what I would say to you is that your Bible's missing some pages. You should take it back to wherever you bought it from and say, there's something missing 
in this book that I'm reading. I, I don't think anyone can read this book honestly and say that this idea of sacrificial giving to the church that I now call home is not supposed to be a regular part of my life, which means that you're only left with two choices. It's either 10 or it just starts with 10, and then you should discover as God favors you even greater depths of generosity. The portion is important. And this is why I think God sets it a certain amount. The portion is important because he's teaching us something about a biblical concept, which is called a tithe, which literally means a tenth part, is because everything that you do by way of an act of generosity is positioned for reciprocity, right? Reciprocity means that you reap what you sow. Right? This is a great verse if you're a note taker, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. You can write that down. It'll be in the notes if you, if you download it. Talks about this idea of reaping and sowing. Galatians 6 talks about reaping and sowing. Every act of generosity that you step into qualifies for something the Bible calls reciprocity. Right? There's a return. There's blessing that comes back. It's not why we do it. Right? We do it to honor God. And then because he's a loving father, he blesses us in turn. A tithe goes beyond reciprocity. When, 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 you, when you tithe, which means once you cross the threshold of 10%, you now enter into something that is actually beyond reciprocity. If you give less than 10%, then the blessing and favor that's coming to you is going to be born out of the principle of reciprocity. But once you hit the 10% and go beyond, then now your life and your material resources become a candidate for something the Bible calls a tithe. So let's look at that a little bit further. Somebody say the consequence. The consequence, you're just going to see verse 10 on the screen. I'm going to start reading in verse 7. It says, Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But you ask, how can we return when we have never gone away? Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? And you have cheated me. Listen to what he says. Of the tithes and the offerings due to me, Listen to verse 9. You were under a curse, and your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do so, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you, and I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Listen to what he says. Try it and put me to the test. It is the only time in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation where God invites us to test him. It's interesting that he does it with the concept of tithing. God doesn't demand a tithe because he's some greedy ruler over the universe and he wants your money. God demands a tithe of us because he's trying to teach us that when we give that 10%, we're actually redeeming the 90% that remains. And whenever God demands something from us, it's because he's trying to lead us into a life that's better than the one that we have now. And for so many of us in our humanity, we have a tendency to settle for less. See, the consequence of not tithing, right? Generosity qualifies for reciprocity. But tithing qualifies for something that Malachi says that there is an open heaven over your material resources that 10% positions you for. And it's based on the principle of redemption. The 10% that I give redeems 
the 90% that remains, so it's now qualified for the supernatural favor that God wants to bestow upon it. He's not demanding it of us because he's greedy. He's demanding it of us because he loves us and he wants us to walk in the fullness of the favor that he has for us in this life. In teaching our children about tithing as they begin to get jobs and right cutting grass, babysitting, and now actually two of them having like jobs with bosses, right, where they're showing up and punching a clock and working and human resource, right? They've got real jobs. You know what they're walking into those with is with the conviction that tithing is going to be a part of their financial future for the rest of their days. Because they understand it's all it's about redemption. It's about redemption. Redeem the 90. Can I just tell you this? That 90% with God's favor and blessing will always be more than 100% without it. 90% with God's favor and blessing will always be more. And I would say it's always going to be far more, far more than 100% without it. When you forgo the tithe, the consequence is, the consequence is you're not redeeming what remains. There's the portion, there is the consequence and there is the priority. Somebody say priority. All right, so we'd like a little participation here at the City Life Church. What's something in your life that is a priority for you far beyond anything else? We're going to start right over here, Hannah. My family. Your family. Yes, indeed. Larry, we say, you say family? Yeah. yeah. Marriage. There you go. May? Yeah. Marriage? Doug. Doug, there you go. Husbands, you're failing here. <laughs> Haven't heard anybody say my wife yet. You're in trouble. Jamal. Google Play Music. Google Play Music. All right, because he's not married yet. But one day, right? One day. All right. Somebody else. Something that's a priority in your life about anything else. Spencer, Raven, nice. Well done. School. School, yes. Your pets, indeed, Jeremy. Golf, yes. It's his vocation. He's allowed to say that. Your wife. There you go, Greg. Hey, come on. There you go. Somebody else, anybody over here, something that's a prior, over the balcony. Yeah, a hobby or a talent. Yes, ma'am. Basic survival needs, yes. Their priorities above all else. Anybody else, anybody else up top? No? Food, somebody said food. Coffee, praise the name. Yes. It is her vocation, but even for those of us it's not, it's still a priority, right? Still a priority. Not that raisiny coffee, David, either, right? Smoky, oily, dark coffee. That's what we want. Right? You've got stuff in your life that's a priority. You, you've got stuff in your life that you would, you would never not think that it's okay to not do it. Right? You've got stuff in your life just like that. You, everybody has a list. Some people's lists, right, they all overlap to some degree based on season of life, and, right? But everybody has a list as you move through life they're what we call non-negotiables. We will not negotiate these things. We, we will not. Regardless of my situation, regardless of my circumstance, regardless of the season of life that I'm in, it is a priority. Generosity in your life is going to ebb and flow based on your material position. Meaning that when you're in seasons of lack... 
your ability to be generous, generous is going to be less than maybe other times. Generosity should be a non-negotiable, but how much that generosity ultimately is, is going to vary from season to season. That's connected to reciprocity. Tithing is supposed to be a priority that regardless of my circumstance and my situation, that that 10% is always supposed to be a part of who I am. I like that he makes it a percent because then it's even playing field for every person, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 16, 1-2. Now regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches of Galatia. On the first day of each week, you should put aside a portion of the money that you have earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. There's a principle here of making your tithe a priority. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10, love these verses. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. And then, listen to what it says, he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. Why? Because the 10% redeems the 90% that remains. Matthew 6.33, we know this verse, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Let me share this thought with you. Tithing necessitates that I give this portion, the 10% first, and I trust the wisdom of God and the favor of God to provide for me and my family's material needs. You know, this building is filled with all kinds of of uh, um, items that represent the history and the story of this church. The, 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 even though this building is gifted to us and North Riverside Baptist Church has closed as a congregation, the story of North Riverside Baptist Church, it's important that it continue on. That's why the celebration that's coming up in uh, September 13th, 14th, I think date 13th and 14th, we're calling that Legacy Weekend, Breaking New Ground. It's going to be an amazing weekend. We just, we're getting that on your calendar. I know we've done some Save the Date promoting here. But the story, reason why we're calling it a legacy weekend is because the story of NRBC needs to continue. We're talking about the conference room being set aside as we begin to do renovations in, in this building, that that room's going to tell the story of North Riverside Baptist Church. So even years from now, even when many of us aren't here, the story of NRBC will still be here. And th- this is one of the items that I've, I've pulled out of all the things that we're finding here. They've got all these offering plates. I, I'm pretty sure these offering plates were part of this church in the 60s. They've got some age on them, don't they? There's stacks of these offering plates back in in the choir room. This is going to be one of the things that's going to be mounted on that wall with some verses that are attached to it. Can you imagine how many hands have touched this plate over the decades? Can you imagine how many times this plate, right, from the chapel over there, which was their first sanctuary, how many times these plates have been passed from person to person to person? The sacrifice that it represents, what's gone into this? It's powerful, is it not? powerful. People making decisions, making God's kingdom a priority. And because of their generosity for these decades, all of this is here and has been gifted to us. Now, I've been saying all along, the building was free, but it comes with a cost. And the cost is our responsibility to steward it for the next generation that's going to come after us. And we will, not, we will not be able to accomplish everything that God's going to ask of us. Just like NRBC would have not been able to accomplish everything that God asked of them if they had not been faithful in their giving. And we're going to have to be faithful in our giving as we move forward. Not just for our 
lives, but for the generations of the future. All right, somebody say the attitude. The attitude, because we all have one. The attitude. These verses out of 2 Kings are powerful. I'm not going to read them for the, all for the sake of time. I think they're going to be up on the screen for you. Verses 1 through 3. But this is telling the story of an important moment in Israel's history. A young man by the name of Josiah has come to the throne. It's 624 B.C. Now just to give you some historical context, David, who many of us are familiar with, right, who slayed Goliath, who's one of the great kings, if not the greatest king of all of Israel. He reigned around 1056 B.C. So it's about 400 years between David and Josiah. And when you read in the, in the Bible about David and his rule and his reign, you read about a nation that walked in faithfulness for everything that God asked for them. They made mistakes. David even made some big mistakes. But what characterized David and what characterized his nation and what characterized his leadership was obedience to the Word of God. 400 years later, you get to Josiah, and as a nation, they are completely spiritually adrift. And Josiah is this young man that's come to the throne, and, and, and God has inspired him to restore Israel back to a place of walking in obedience. Walking in obedience. Now, it's interesting because what we find in this story of Josiah is that as he began to read the book of the law to the nation, that he was standing between two pillars. Now, these pillars are important for us because they speak to us about the attitude that we're supposed to have when we enter into God's house and bring with us the gifts that he's blessed us with so that we can build his church. Now, to get the history of these columns, we've got to go back a little bit, not in 2 Kings, but all the way back to 1 Kings, and we get to chapter 7, verse 21, and it says, Huram, who was the architect, set the pillars at the entrance of the temple, and the one toward the south, and then one toward the north, and he named them Jachin and Boaz, Jachin and Boaz. Jacob means he establishes, and Boaz means in him is strength. Now, there's a reason why they picked those names, and there's a reason why they were at the entrance of the temple. Because when people came to the temple, one of the reasons why they came was to bring their offerings. And every person that walked up the steps, right, walked up the steps to the temple at some point, right, they would pass through these two columns. He establishes and in him is strength. Why did God put them there? And why did he name that? Because he wanted them to know that as they were faithful to give as he had asked them, that God was going to be faithful in turn to favor them in everything that they would do. Because he establishes, which means that he keeps his promises. And in him is strength, which means that there is nothing that he cannot do. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're going to be giving a gift, what more powerful message could there be to me that God has promises that he's spoken over to me for my financial well-being, and he has the power to do it? 
And that as I take care and walk in obedience of the things that he has asked me to do, that he's going to establish his promises in my life and that he has the strength, he has the strength to provide for me in every way. Our gift does not rise to the standard of the tithe until the sentiment of the heart from which it comes crosses the threshold of celebration. Let me read that again. Our gift does not rise to the standard of the tithe until the sentiment of heart from which it comes crosses the threshold of celebration. The worship team's going to come back. This is an important time and an important season for us as a church and as a congregation. And this idea of, of tithing is going to be an important part of our story. In fact, it's been an important part of our story for the last 13 years. And so just a couple of times a year, right? Not too much, not too little, like the anchovy and the Caesar salad. This truth and this principle, it needs to season our lives and it needs to season our church so that we can be faithful in all that God has for us and all that he's asking us for do, to do in the 757 and in the world beyond. These principles, these four that we talked about tonight, and in two weeks we're going to talk about four more, these eight principles are important. Because if you're not walking in all of them, it could be that your gift is just a moment of generosity. Now, that's a great place to start. Because your life and my life is in need of reciprocity. But you know what it's also in need of? It's in need of supernatural favor. And that's only going to come through redemption. And when we acknowledge and walk in these principles that God has for us, then all of a sudden, this special kind of gift becomes a tithe. And then that tithe redeems all that remains so that we can experience all the favor that God has set aside for us. Stand with me. Father, as we step into this moment of worship, we know that you've been speaking to all of our hearts in many different ways tonight. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you that you carry things from the heart of God right into our very present moment. So the work that you're doing in every person's heart, we say, have your way. I pray that during this last song, Father, that every person here, whatever you're speaking to them, whatever you're doing in their life, that they're just going to give you an open door, just as Chris encouraged us earlier and as we were singing to lift up our hands in a moment of worship. God, I pray that people would posture themselves in that way, not just on the outside, but on the inside, that there would be surrender, that there would be surrender. And that each of us would experience the longing that we desperately need to be hungry, to be hungry, to walk in obedience to everything that you have for us and to trust you. And that you are a God who still establishes and that in you there is still strength like no other in Jesus' name. Come on, let's worship together. Hey, at the end of our service, like every week, there's going to be people here at the front, somebody in the back to pray with you as we close our service in a song.